for August 24th, 2016. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. like a ton of bricks if this is really it this is starting over there's no should have could have would have said this done that no turning back no more I wonders but no harm done no hard feelings and maybe some other time and it gives me some peace of mind if that was the end of the ride I'm getting back in line cause I'm telling you there's nothing like starting Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Energy transition is a complex subject with many confounding details, and innovative ideas often run aground on the rocks of contemporary reality. It would be far simpler, for example, to get rid of old, inefficient thermal power plants if we didn't have to worry about who owns them or how to compensate them when those assets are retired. As I've said before in this podcast, transition will make winners and losers, and we shouldn't shy away from that fact. Instead, we should try to find the most effective and painless path forward toward the grid of the future, recognizing that there will be pain, and that the most effective policies, think carbon taxes, might just be political non-starters. In order to do that, I think it's helpful once in a while to poke our heads above the trees and look around, and to think about where we really want to go, rather than what's pragmatically possible today. To imagine what kind of a grid we really want in the future. A grid that is fair, equitable, reliable, efficient, resilient, sustainable, and which serves our climate and social goals. If we could just start over today and design the grid from scratch, what would it look like? To explore this idealized landscape while staying at least a little grounded, we'll be speaking today with Jim Kennerly, a principal analyst with Sustainable Energy Advantage in Massachusetts. Formerly, he was a senior policy analyst at the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center at North Carolina State University, where he worked on the Database of State Incentives for Renewables and Efficiency Project, more commonly known by its acronym, DESIRE, a very useful resource that I've used for years when I needed information on energy incentives in various states. With funding from the U.S. Department of Energy's SunShot Initiative, Jim has also researched distributed energy economics utility regulation, and rate design. He has also served as a consultant to the EPA's Energy Star program. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jim, to the Energy Transition Show. 
Thanks a lot, Chris. When it comes to raid design, it's easy to get deep in the weeds pretty quickly. And I think those of us who have followed the debates over rate design with respect to rooftop solar, particularly the swirling proposals around net metering and what to do about the impact that it's having on utilities, tend to get pretty focused on the pros and the cons of various tariffs, and we can lose sight of the goal. I mean, we argue for months over things like fixed charges and demand charges or switching from net metering to buy-all, sell-all tariffs or some other mechanism, and we forget that the whole intent here was to foster rooftop solar as a supply resource and start moving away from the big centralized thermal generators of the past. So I, I think it might be interesting for us to go back to first principles here and talk about what we're really trying to do here. Like what would a good regulatory and tariff design look like if we started from scratch today, rather than having all this other stuff to worry about, like paying off the owners of potentially stranded assets like coal and nuclear plants or creating smart incentives that actually encourage the stuff that we want, working toward generation, transmission, and and distribution architectures that are designed around distributed renewables from the get-go and so on. So here I think we might slightly reprise a recent conversation that you and I had on Twitter, where we started with some fundamental principles offered up by Ben Paulus, who was actually our guest on episode three of this podcast. So just for the benefit of listeners who didn't happen to catch that exchange, the four rules of distributed energy that Ben suggested as his DER manifesto were customers have the right to generate and save power. Two, customers that use the grid should help pay for the grid. Three, customers that provide benefits to the grid should be paid for those benefits. And four, public policy should prefer distributed, clean, domestic energy. So let's just start with the first one. Should customers have the right to generate and save power? I think we'd agree without reservation that customers should be able to save power, that is to implement efficiency measures without any restriction, yeah? Yeah, I, I think that's basically right. Well, at least I should start with thinking of what's a right legally versus sort of like what public policy ought to be. And I think, legally speaking, the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, PERPA, allows customers to self-generate in order to offset their usage and the amount that they generate, the amount that they physically use on site is something that is protected and it's more difficult for a utility to claim is unreasonable or unjust as far as the regulatory standard is concerned. And so ultimately there is certainly a right to self-generate, but it does get somewhat more complex once you get to the level of does a customer have the right to generate and sell back to the grid? Right. Okay. So we would agree that you should be able to save power no matter what. And I think nothing should prevent me from saving or generating power full stop within reasonable limits. I mean, wouldn't you agree that it's really a question of what can you do while being connected to the grid? Isn't that grid interconnection really the, the kind of the sticking point? I think it's, there are certainly costs associated with interconnection. There's certainly costs associated with you know, the utility side of processing an application of determining whether reliability is affected and all those different issues, you know, as far as a, a right is concerned, I, I think it's, it's not a right without cost. You know, it's, right. it's obviously there's a cost to it. And if there's a cost associated with integrating, you know, that system into the grid, that's something that utilities certainly attempt to recover through rates and through 
additional charges. I mean, because obviously not all of the cost necessarily is passed on in every case to the generator. Right. But I mean, just to make it really clear what I'm talking about here, if I'm totally off grid, then I should be able to generate and save as much power as I want to off grid. Yeah, I think that's certainly something that you can do more effectively because it's not touching the grid. It's not touching something that's sort of not your property and something that affects someone else's property and also is meant for, you know, the public use. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so again, I'm just kind of trying to build up from first principles here. Okay. Absolutely. So it's interconnection then is the key point at which we start getting into the, the difficulty. So is interconnection a right or should it be? And is it subordinate to a utility's monopoly right to own and run a distribution system? Well, I think it's different in different states. There's certainly states that have a more open perspective as far as the, the ability of wholesale generators, whether that's at the transmission level or the distribution level, to interconnect. I think as time goes on, it will be somewhat more difficult to justify restrictions on interconnection that are, you know, just across the board, you know, just simply say you cannot interconnect. Mm. But I think that there is a question of how much does it cost to interconnect? You know, what is the price of integrating distributed resources look like and what, what should it look like so that the utility can maintain the service necessary to serve your location or your system or what have you. And right. it's okay. different for larger systems or systems at load or, you know, virtually net metered systems. It's different for different kinds of systems. Right. But I haven't actually raised the issue of price yet. We haven't quite gotten there yet. So we're sure. just we're just talking now about should we have the right. So I think we would generally agree that a customer should have the right to interconnect to the grid. I think in general, yes, but it's something that there are situations I could see in which that right could either be curtailed or come at some cost. Yeah. And I think we would agree that it has to be a bounded right. Sure. There have to be limits to that right. I think on the uh, Twitter exchange, you made an analogy to the fact that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, <laughs> even though you have a right to a freedom of speech. Yeah. Well, it's the same kind of thing. Okay. But yeah, it, it's a right with responsibilities, for lack of a better word. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then the utility, of course, has its own responsibility to to manage a grid and to keep it reliable and to serve everyone who's connected to it and so on. So at some point, the utility's right probably is supervening to the customer's right to interconnect. Yeah, it certainly can be. I mean, and we've seen situations where in Hawaii, for example, where they've reached extremely high penetrations on a given distribution circuit where they've either gone much more slowly with interconnection or have halted interconnection entirely. I think a way that some of the utilities in that situation, and HECO in particular, and I've, I've seen the utilities in New York start doing this as well, looking at the areas in which DG would create more locational benefit. And that's sort of a way to get around the question of, can you interconnect and what's the cost of interconnecting and you know what's sort of the you know, for lack of a better word, distribution, investment, deferral value of doing so. But certainly, yeah, it can be something that a utility can get to the point of saying, we can't deliver reliable service. And so as a result, this is not possible. But it seems like most likely a fairly extreme case. 
Yeah, Hawaii is sort of an extreme case. At least compared to the rest of the United States. Yeah, because they have such an incredibly high penetration of solar on its grid already. Sure. And you can see the argument where they would say, look, we can deny you the right to connect to this right now with your solar system because we can't keep the grid balanced and operating and reliable if you do. Sure. Okay. So let's talk then about the right to generate. Now, I think I'd slightly rephrase that as do customers have the right to be full and equally compensated market actors, both generating and participating in demand response markets as some other merchant generator or the utility itself if it's vertically integrated? So I I think certainly... You know, if you want to take it from the extreme case to kind of the to sort of see if it's the exception that proves the rule, for lack of a better word, I think many people would argue it may not necessarily be just to pay some kind of temporary or a day ahead kind of wholesale value. I think there's a lot of skepticism of the idea that there's no other either utility cost or market cost that's avoided in that that scenario. I think that that's something that is certainly something that a lot of market participants are pretty pretty hesitant to sign up with that kind of thinking. But certainly it is not necessarily, I mean, if you're talking about the case of net metering, it, it's very different in different jurisdictions. Some jurisdictions are, you know, if, if there's a winter peaking utility and solar doesn't doesn't really contribute much to that peak, it's kind of difficult to say, for certain that the capacity value would be sufficient to have the benefits outweigh the costs. I mean, that could happen. I mean, there's certainly times and places where that can and likely does happen. It's somewhat less common, however, if you're in a place where, if you have a lot more load growth occurring, if you have a lot more investment to defer, I think that that's certainly when compensation would be much higher and and likely reflects something that the utility would forego and for that reason would be beneficial and likely more economically efficient. So I think that there's also a larger question though, and I think this is something that I've seen a lot of smart people start bringing up, I mean, particularly in areas that have a lot of renewables, is to say, you know, what is this going to do to wholesale prices? Like, what is this going to do when you have some very low variable cost resources like renewable energy that will ultimately make variable costs so low that it's difficult to sustain further investment in not just fossil fired or nuclear resources, but further renewables. Yeah, the so-called value deflation argument. Yeah. And I think that that's the question that's embedded within this question of fair compensation is to say, what is fair compensation now may not be fair compensation when renewables are 50% of the grid. That's a great point. It's something that's sort of fungible and works on a sliding scale. And I think that that's why this debate, I think sometimes this debate falls a bit short in terms of the cognizance of change over time. Yeah, especially if you're talking about, you know, putting up another rooftop solar system that's going to be there putting power on the grid with a zero marginal cost for 25, 30 years. Yeah. Sure. And I mean, and it's different when you're talking about, you know, foregoing some kind of utility investment, you know, if it's actually offsetting, and this is particularly true with energy efficiency, a lot of utilities in the past would only encourage energy efficiency insofar as it was profitable for them. And by that, they meant it passed the 
you know, ratepayer impact measure test, which is to say, if this raises costs for ratepayers at all, this isn't something we want to do. That's just a very strict perspective. It's something that you see with renewables. Well, I think where we were going with that was that as a customer, you should have, at least to some level, the right to connect and to be a participant in markets, both providing energy to the grid and to take energy off the grid through demand response and to be compensated for those things. Right. But there are even further limits on that because we have caps on interconnections. Sure. And even in California, there's a specified limit to how much of the grid power should be allowed to be provided by rooftop solar. And exactly. then when they hit yeah. that limit, they don't have to accept any more interconnections. Yeah. But the, I guess the point I was getting at there is that the customer doesn't have an equal right to the utility to generate power and to be compensated for it and to connect to the grid. I mean, there's there's limits right there where sure. by state law, you know, the utility only has to accept so many interconnections and the utility only has to pay so much for power generated by rooftop solar. Sure. I did want to note, though, that in part that happens also because net metering is it's kind of a in quotes, dumb system, you know, where it's not accounting necessarily for the the granular attributes of the electricity on a more sophisticated distribution grid. And so that's why there are caps in place. That's right. They're only getting paid for energy. They're not getting paid for so-called ancillary services or other services that they might actually be providing to the grid. Right. And I think a lot of utilities, when they agreed to those compromises, sort of thought to themselves, well, solar isn't going to get that cheap, you know, that quickly. And lo and behold, it did. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of this happen the way it did in this sort of more less orderly manner, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've kind of laid some of the the fundamentals here that shouldn't be too controversial. Now I'd like to kind of expand the problem space a little bit and talk about things maybe in a little more creative way. So suppose we ignore just for the moment the current structure of the grid power market and all the players and the assets on it and the problems of making those players and assets whole as we get through this energy transition and some of them get pushed off the grid and think what would we do if we were to just build the whole thing from scratch, like right now? Would we still want utilities to operate the grid, but that let anybody who wants to generate power do it? So if I put a rooftop solar system on my house, should I be absolutely competing on an equal footing 100% with some other merchant generator? You know, let's all be generators. I mean, if we were just to start from scratch, I'm sure we wouldn't design what we have now. <laughs> so what would we design and, and why why shouldn't we all be generators and why shouldn't we all be participants in demand response markets? Okay. I think you raise a good point because there's a very different mindset you have to take when you're looking at Greenfield versus you know the world as it is. And I think that that's something that it's a really interesting question. It's something that Carl Ravigo and I took a look at in you may remember there was a competition that SEPA had. It was the solar, and I guess now it's the Smart Electric Power Alliance. I forgot the the, the 51st name. state. Yes, the 51st state, exactly. And you know, Carl and I took a look at this question of, and SEPA posed the the question as, what would you do if this was a brand new state and you wanted to, in essence, start over? 
from a policy and market right. perspective. And, and I thought that was a fascinating series of papers, by the way. Yeah, we really enjoyed working together on it. And I, I think what was interesting is we kind of took the perspective of the catastrophic event in a particular jurisdiction. And we, we looked at, we called it Superstorm Cindy, <laughs> of all things. <laughs> um, just to, that was, that was, a, that was Carl's idea. But the, uh, <laughs> but what we, we kind of, posed this idea that, you know, the utility wanted to, quote unquote, harden their infrastructure. And, and so for that reason, they wanted to raise rates and they wanted to go on this, you know, multi-billion dollar reconstruction plan. And it's, it was definitely intended to be kind of a Rev-esque exercise. And, you know, I think what was interesting was, was that we were kind of talking about well, what, what should happen. And then the thing that was, was most interesting was to see Rev start to talk about and implement some of the things we were suggesting, such as looking at, you know, what's the sort of value to society of a utility investment, of the utility-sided investment, and say, is this a good investment from the perspective of society as a whole, you know, New York as a whole, if it's Rev, or Massachusetts as a whole, if it's Massachusetts or California as a whole. And, you know, that was one thing we, we wanted to look at because we were saying this is electricity generation and its water use and its you know fuel use and its criteria air pollution its carbon pollution have a really significant impact and these are unpriced externalities and so we wanted to look at pricing in as many of those externalities as possible and i think that those tend to be in my personal view the most effective ways to, to kind of look at these problems because ultimately if you look at energy capacity externality value, that ultimately turned out to be where New York is beginning to head. And I think that that's something that we were thinking that would be the most valuable in, you know, a green field kind of situation, sort of a, you know, what could you do with all the control you want? And I think that was one thing. And the other was just to look at the utilities business model as rewarding them for making investments that do not necessarily increase sales. And I think that it's not just simply making them whole for their investments, but also encouraging them with incentives that are tied to their, you know, their return on equity, their return on their assets to give them an opportunity to do that. Because I think it's when you're so deep in an accounting system that's based on sales, it's really hard to think about that differently. Yeah. Okay. So two points that I'd like to take off from there. One is if we were to just design the whole grid from scratch right now, would it even make sense to have vertically integrated utilities? I, I think it's a great question, and it and it really comes down to, and this is something you know Carl and I looked at as well, was what is and what will remain in a natural monopoly state. And I think that's the whole reason why Sam Minsel created the vertically integrated model to begin with was that he realized that, it made sense for there to be one provider all the way from the plants to the socket. And it made sense to the meter. And I think that he realized that that was the cheapest way to go. Instead of having seven trolley companies on the street, it's better to have one. You know, it's better to have one electricity provider instead of 10 Edisons, you know, with the powerhouse at the end of the street. And I think then it made sense. But over time, I guess it, it, it's reasonable to question that whether it does or it doesn't. And over time, that's been the, the direction is to say, 
oh, well, we have these disruptive moments, such as the advent of combined cycle natural gas plants, you know, that that made a lot of economists rethink the idea that generation should be vertically integrated. And that's what led to restructuring in a bunch of different states. And so it's this question of natural monopoly that just kind of keeps moving its way down from the generator level through the transmission level to the distribution level. And there's been questions of market design that have occurred as a result. Now, it's not clear necessarily whether having a vertically integrated utility from the you know the point of generation down necessarily makes sense in every jurisdiction and some it may and some it may not and over time it is definitely changing and i think it's definitely going to be a question that is posed more and more and more and i think even in the the places that are restructured like in new england there's going to be these questions of you know is there sort of a wise pathway towards having a system operator instead of a utility, you know, and I, and I think that New York has kind of bridged that question by saying, let's make them a distribution service provider. You know, it's right. kind of a way of getting past the question of, should there be a utility? It's sort of just a way of getting past that point. But in theory, you could see there being something resembling an RTO at the distribution level that could sort of serve the same function. But exactly. I think that's going to be something that's very complicated and is probably going to require a very, very high penetration of distributed resources. Yeah, and it would require something like the internet to do the communications and the management, which didn't exist 100 years ago, right? Right, right. And I think not just the internet, but, you know, the internet of things and, you know, a, a lot of a lot of advancements just beyond, I don't want to call it the traditional internet, but, you know, the just the the sort of customer facing internet. Right. So the other direction I wanted to take from that previous point was when I was reading those 51st state papers, mm -hmm. I spent some time actually trying to compare and contrast the proposal that you and Carl Robigo had come up with, with the one that John Wellinghoff and James Tong had come up with. Sure. And I thought it was a really kind of a fun exercise, but also sort of a confusing one <laughs> to try to compare the two because, uh, you know, my head started to spin. So uh, since I got you here, I, I just thought sure. I'd ask you, like, how would you compare and contrast your respective proposals? I think there was a little less specificity in what Carl and I were looking at than what James and John were looking at. I don't think that what they were doing was wrong. I, I don't think I really saw a proposal in the mix that just to me, I thought was kind of insufficient to the task. You know, I, I didn't really see a lot of, I didn't see a lot in there that I was thinking, well, that just doesn't make any sense at all. And I, I think that, you know, with that being said, I, I think what probably that difference was, was exactly what I was mentioning earlier, which is the natural monopoly piece of things. You know, I, I think what Carl and I left the door open to the utility potentially owning generation or owning any asset if it's shown that natural monopoly is sort of the smart way to go and is cost effective from that societal cost test perspective. And I think that that it really does go back to the idea of the societal cost test and taking into account these pretty significant unpriced externalities that is really the secret to the sauce of a lot of this. And I think that that's, that's where you kind of head over time with policy that's sort of more broadly applicable, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
I mean, one of the things that, that did jump out at me from my comparison of your respective proposals was that I felt like Tong and Wellinghoff were really focused on going toward just sort of a full-blown, unrestricted free market. Mm-hmm. It was more of the transactive energy kind of yeah. vision. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so in that case, pricing these externalities becomes kind of an interesting problem, doesn't it? Because, I mean, this, this is something that I've done some work on where you, you look at competing investments while trying to price in externalities like the social cost of carbon. Sure. But there's a lot of other, when you get into grid power, there's a lot of other stuff besides the cost of carbon. Absolutely. That really ought to be priced in. You know, there's the value of all these services and so on. And, and now we're seeing proposals like the one that just made its way finally through the system there in, in Minnesota where they've got a proper value of solar tariff. Right. right. So, I mean, I can sort of imagine how that stuff gets priced into a full-blown market design like Tong and Wellinghoff were proposing. How would that work in the proposal that you and Robigo came up with? I'm not sure how I can answer that, like how it's part of it, but I would say that I, I think what's interesting and intriguing about the whole I, value solar approach, and I mean, I think it's it's something that can mean a lot of different things, and so I would just be careful in how I describe it because I think it it, it involves you know sort of the separate estimation of a wide variety of benefits and costs, and I mean, and also just you know from what perspective and, and who can, you know, who pays and why and, sure, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And it's very complicated. And in, in the end, it's the outcome of a negotiation, right? And it's like, we all agree to price these things this way. Yeah. And I think you're, you're heading in a really interesting direction. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But what's interesting about the value solar approaches is, is that it takes into account a wide variety and it unbundles a number of these different Cost and avoided cost, for lack of a better word. I think benefits sometimes, it can be kind of a normative word. And it's sort of like what costs are avoided versus what costs are incurred. You know, and mm-hmm. I think that that's the more sort of neutral and sort of policy-wise way of putting it in my perspective. And those things change over time. Like I was saying previously about markets being more saturated. If the market becomes more saturated with extremely low variable cost resources, then it would make sense that that market clears at a lower level reflecting that the marginal resource starts to become much lower priced. And I think that that's, that's something that can be accounted for in a value solar methodology. And then that can sort of start to act as a break on development, and, you know, if that needs to occur. You know, I, I, I don't think that there's much of an outer limit to distributed resource development, but at the same time, there does come a point at which it kind of has a market corrective element. And I think that's what was interesting about value of solar and sort of policies that incorporate, you know, sort of a ex- more explicit cost and avoided cost framework. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess it really kind of comes down to what are the mechanisms of, of doing that pricing and then, and right. then how, does, how does that flow through to contracts and, you know. Sure. And I think that's the really interesting question, which is, this debate is a very complicated one. It's it's one that's very technical, and I mean the debate about net metering in right. particular, and because solar is obviously sort of the vanguard of the distributed resource revolution, for lack of a better word. And I, I think that debate is, I think it's troubled by kind of an interest and a 
focus on the solution rather than the goal, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. I think that what happens is, is there's sort of this question of, well, you know, it's just the industry. And I think it's understandable, you know, that they understand net metering. They understand how it works. They can project it forward. They can talk to an investor about it, you know, and I think that I very much understand, you know, why that's a hard thing to walk away from. And I think at the same time, a lot of utilities sort of will say, oh, well, if it costs our customers anything, we need to cut it or we need to reduce it or end it or, you know, whatever their reaction is. And I think that the the interesting place is, is that in, in the word that really, you know, rang through to me of what you said was negotiation. And I think that that's sort of where this discussion and this debate needs to go. And I think that's the direction I've sort of been sensing it's starting to go. And I think, I think what's happened in New York has really started to break the logjam of that conversation of that sort of like intense solutions focus and sort of an intense sort of, you know, desire to keep the solution as it was. I think it's a good development. I think looking at it as sort of a compensation mechanism and to say, how do we set up compensation in an appropriate manner that reflects a wide variety of cost and avoided costs and how that can be replicable. Because I think what, what's useful is for there to be, I mean, there's going to be diversity, but having replicability is really, really important. And I think it's, it's important for investment in general. It's important for the investors of the utility. It's important for the investors of distributed resources. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I, I've thought that Rev was just a super interesting thing for the very reason you mentioned, that it kind of broke the logjam and opened up the possibility that if New York could actually crack that nut and figure out a new way of doing things and how to restructure their markets, that it would be replicable. It's something that the rest of the states could follow and all of a sudden we'd be in a whole new ballgame. Yeah. It's not quite that easy. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and it has a long way to go. And, you know, I, I don't want to speak too much to it because some of my colleagues at RMI have been integrally involved with that project and I've had absolutely nothing to do with it. So sure. you know, I, I shouldn't say anything about it probably. But well, it's, it's a process that I was following for a long time before I came to work at RMI. And I, I just think it's super interesting as right. a model that other states could follow. And even if Rev should turn out to be just a colossal failure, it, it would be mm -hmm. a success in the sense that it really just got down in there with those difficult problems and grappled with them and, and started to explore different ways of solving those problems. Yeah. And, it, and it opened up a dialogue and a debate and it got guys like us looking at it and thinking about it and considering different ways of doing things, which in itself would be a massive advance, really. Sure. And I, I think one thing that people may not some people, I should say, may not necessarily like about the American system of government is how much federalism and how much sort of devolution of power exists. And I think that that's something that is really central to the work that, you know, the policy work and the policy analysis that I do, because states are so different and they treat these issues so differently. Mm -hmm. And different PUCs have different sorts of authority and all Absolutely, kinds of stuff. Yeah. Pre precisely. And I think that that's one of the things that's so interesting to me because I think it's it's sort of a, a hindrance in a sense for for distributed resource development, but it's also kind of a really interesting opportunity. There's a really interesting kind of silver lining associated with it that you can try new things. You can try different things in different places and see how they go. 
And I think that that's something that's really potentially valuable about what's happening in New York because there's going to be different, you know, Minnesota, for example, will do grid modernization differently. In Massachusetts, will do is doing grid modernization differently. And it's going to be something that's sort of appropriate to the circumstances. And I think that really goes back to what Carl and I were talking about is we were trying to talk in much broader terms because we realized it was going to be different in different circumstances. And it was going to be something that you wanted, you'd want to look at these broader principles of saying, does it fit the economics such that there's the possibility that a sustainable market could emerge, not just a, you know, super fast and then cut off market like there was in Nevada or or in other places. You want to set it up so that it's sort of steady and it's it's a self-sustaining force. And I think that that's that those are the goals, I think, of, of good policy is to not necessarily say, well, it has to be net metering or it has to be the wholesale rate. It has to be this. And I think that that's sort of what ends up being a lot of the hindrance of creative thought. I mean, I think the market kind of demands it. It demands, let's find a way that works. Yeah. So just to be 100 percent candid about this whole thing. What we're really talking about here is who's going to win and who's going to lose, right? That's exactly right. And I think everyone is going to win and lose at different times and in different ways. And I think that's just not an answer most people want to hear, you know, and I don't think that's something that's easy to hear. And it's, if it's good, they always want the good to continue. If it's bad, they want to instantly end the bad. And I think that's just human nature. And I, I think you're absolutely right. That's right. And with respect to these debates that we have about, you know, what's the right sort of market design and so on, I think it's almost comical sometimes how we get so deep into the weeds about the technicalities of one market design or one tariff or whatever over another. Sure. When in the back of our minds, what we're all really thinking about is, do I stand to win or do I stand to lose? Yeah. And I, and that's part of why I wanted to have this dialogue with you about you know, just kind of going back to first principles and saying, well, how would we design this if there was nobody to lose? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'll tell you, I think the analyst in me wants to sort of take it completely out of the more sort of political or the human element, but it's impossible, you know, and I think great policy analysis and great market analysis and great, you know, laws and regulatory systems are based on understanding the human element and understanding that different people have different perspectives, different people will win and lose in different ways and places and times. And I think those are the things that last are the things that people can buy into. Yeah. And recognizing all that and that there are all sorts of restrictions on the way that people act and what they can do. And and there's all sorts of money on the line and there's all sorts of business relationships and so on that we have to work around. I think that's one of the reasons, actually, why I'm quite interested in Commissioner Florio's proposal from the California Public mm-hmm. Utility Commission, where where he's basically said, okay, y'all understand and y'all have done business for a long, long time around this concept of rate basing, right? Like, bring me some mm-hmm. assets that you want to buy, and I will give you a regulated rate of return on those assets. If it seems like it's a reasonable cost and there's an actual need for it in the grid, I will give you a regulated rate of return on those assets. And that's something that everybody's been operating with for decades and we all understand how it works and we've Mm. all got all sorts of spreadsheet models and database models and everything Mm. all ready to go. Everybody knows how this game is played, right? They've got some pretty cool ones in California too. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And, And so what I think is really cool about his proposal is he says, bring me portfolios of distributed energy resources. 
and I'll mm-hmm. give you your regulated rate of return on it, the 5% or whatever it is, right? So instead of just saying, bring me a natural gas plant, bring me a, another transmission substation or another nuclear plant or whatever, mm-hmm. he's saying, bring me a whole mess of demand response assets. Bring me a bunch of behind the meter batteries. Sure. Bring me efficiency investments and I'll give you 5% on it. Mm-hmm. And that I think is a really, I mean, it's funny, it, it's sort of simultaneously creative and sort of dull. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. It's a sort of old wine and new bottles, I guess, would be a way of describing yeah. it in a sense. I mean, I don't know. So I'll just, I'll be flat out. I have not read like necessarily any kind of detailed proposal. From what I understand of what you're saying, I will say that I think one of the things that I would wonder about a proposal like that is the arbitrage that's happening behind it. And I think if there's a point at which the utility is saying, or the grid operator or whomever it is, you know, in whichever situation is saying, okay, well, I will pay you, you know, this rate that doesn't necessarily compensate you at the value it creates because I need to be able to profit myself. I don't know if that's a sustainable market design. I don't know if that's something that will work. I think it really does come down to, as you said before, a negotiation. It comes down to finding some place where it does work and where it's a stable value, a stable value that both parties can agree to. So I guess I don't know from that specific proposal's perspective, but in terms of the idea of the utility having essentially callable resources that are at at the distribution level, I think that that's, that's certainly where if a distributed energy future is going to manifest itself is going to need to go and that they, it's going to need to be dealt with as sort of some kind of arbitrage relationship with the utility being in a position of profiting sufficiently such that its investors continue to bring the capital forward. Yeah. And you want to really think about where where are we going, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's kind of the, the reason why I wanted to open up the dialogue space here in, in this yep. interview was to just think about if you could start from a blank slate and come up with a sort of new design, mm-hmm. then what would that tell you about where you want to go based on where you are now, you know? I mean, it, it helps you because it helps you define a goal rather than just trying to think about, well, what can I do tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know? Because I think that kind of incrementalism doesn't necessarily get you where you want to go. And that's why I think Rev is so interesting, is it's kind of a giant leap toward mm-hmm. the future that you want, you know? Yeah. So when I think about that, I think, I mean, what if we just operated the whole grid like a municipal utility? So, mm-hmm. so the entire purpose is just to provide a public good. It's not to be a source of income for investors. Maybe the whole thing is just a nonprofit. Okay. So, so there you still have a utility with the responsibility of keeping the grid working and balanced, and they get paid for that. But it would be publicly owned, and it'd be not for profit. Okay. I mean, what do you think about that idea? Like, because sometimes I wonder if we're really going toward a fully distributed grid. Doesn't that sort of a model make more sense than an investor-based model or a profit-based model? Um, I, I would probably say yes and no. I would, I'll start with the no, which is 
I think I would just reframe some of what you're saying in terms of calling it a nonprofit or calling it publicly owned, because I think one gestalt that I kind of use in the way I think is everyone has investors. You know, even cities have investors, even if they don't have, you know, the, the city may have municipal bonds that it purchases and has underwritten by an investment bank or, you know, some other kind of financial firm, and they still have a coupon that the investor is expecting, and they are intending to to pay their investor. Now, you can go even further, and that's just debt for a publicly owned utility. If you go towards the equity side of it, well, think of Austin Energy. Austin Energy is a rather large source of funds for the city of Austin. You know, they get a very large cut of the profit, it goes into a fund that covers all sorts of services like parks and police and fire and all that kind of stuff. So to say that those entities aren't investors themselves, I mean, they may not literally be sitting there in a business suit with shiny shoes, but they're still investors in the sense that they're sort of expecting something. They're invested in the outcome of exactly, uh, yeah. and that's something I, I kind of hear municipalization pushes and things like that, and I and I think there is a certain element of greater democracy for sure, but I think something also is sort of in, intermediating itself there, which is in order to have power over something, that something has to still produce something. So if you brought in distributed resources to a utility that's owned by a locality or if it's a co-op or something along those lines, they're still invested in the sense that if their sales go down and they don't make the money that they used to make, that's going to create some amount of tension, you know, and that's going to create some kind of sense of, well, we need to look into this. And some people will say, oh, we need to stop this, you know, and so I'm pushing back just a little bit on the idea of investors on the utility side. And I would also say so on the distributed resource side, too, because and it's especially true for a lot of these you know, new assets and new resources is that investors are still not as comfortable with it as they are with something that's been around for 100 years. You know, an, an investor in, you know, I guess, an oil exploration and production company is going to have a very different understanding and comfort level with that asset and some are going to be more aggressive and some are going to be more conservative and so they're going to have a different desire than an investor who's investing in a new technology who wants greater assurance and and part of that greater assurance is a higher return and so a higher return means a higher cost resource and that's just something to keep in mind is that in the end investment is needed at somewhat higher returns in order for this future to happen. So if something like what you're proposing could work, it would need to operate within that kind of gestalt, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. I guess sort of in the back of my mind, as I think about this, I'm also thinking about some some ideas that we heard from Lorenzo Kristov, who was a guest on this show in episode 10, which is, mm. you know, just a super heady conversation about, you know, his ideas for the architecture of the grid of the future. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he talks about was, you know, when we think about how the grid should work in the future or what the architecture of it should be, and all the different players who participate in transactions on the grid and all the different stakeholders, we should really be thinking more broadly than we do. Like we should be thinking about 
all sorts of other municipal assets as components of the grid. Mm -hmm. We should be thinking about, can you use a wastewater treatment plant as a demand response asset? Hmm. Can you use a landfill as a flexible load? That's interesting. And these are all municipal assets, really, at some level, right? I mean, they all serve a public good, however they're defined. You know, like maybe some of them are municipal, maybe some of them are privately owned or, or investor-owned or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they all should work together because they're all serving a public good, and it really is all one giant human ecosystem of a city, sure. you know, or what have you. Sure. So I just it's, think it's, about It's grid that. broadly defined. Yeah, yeah. And I just think, yeah. like, if that's where – if we're really going toward – a new architecture in the future, shouldn't we take these kind of ideas on board? You know, shouldn't it all be considered properly as assets serving the public good that should work together? Sure. I think that this is such a fascinating question because in the end, it it really does come down to some really kind of nuts and bolts aspects of sort of who we are as a society and, you know, what we believe and what we value. And I think that's why this debate is very complicated, because different people have different views, even people who agree largely about a lot of things, you know, who may share a very similar ideology, may have a really different view about the role of the market. You know, you can just see the diversity. I mean, just look at our political parties. There's now just a huge amount, greater obvious diversity in viewpoints that are not exactly reconcilable anymore. It used to be these were differences that were easier to paper over and they were easier to bridge with something. I think distributed energy is really fascinating because it's, I feel like the word disruption is almost getting overused, but it's sort of moving in a sort of very determined march forward into several different interrelated markets. And I think that that's this question that, you know, the the guest you were describing brought up, and I'm sorry I missed that episode. Now I'll have to take a uh, listen to it. is a is a very interesting one, which is if you're trying to have a really efficient marketplace, but also just an efficient society, you'd want to price those externalities. You'd want to look at what creates avoided costs and what creates greatest benefit broadly, and for society, and for ratepayers, and for all involved. And I think that that's that's sort of the great challenge of different places. It's going to make more sense to do one thing in one place and another in another. You might want to do Rev in, in New York, but you might want to do modernized Southern Company in Georgia. It's just going to be different, but it can be something that is, I shouldn't just say can, it has to be something that requires the sort of faith necessary for creative thought to move forward and to kind of give it support and nurturing and life. Yeah. that was deep no that that was and that's that's awesome I mean that's I think that's exactly the right way to think about it yeah and if I could just say one thing it's just my research you know that I I worked on at the center was just this question of how can rate design work to help bring the soft costs of solar down and I think one of the the ways to think about it is just simply that when you get out of the space of needing a solution and needing it to be net metering or needing it to be the wholesale rate or needing it to be anything. It's sort of like your brain just stops your executive function or your creative sense just sort of stops working. And I think that that's just something you want to avoid if you're trying to make good policy. Yeah. 
I would agree. So let's think into the future here a little bit. Sure. I mean, how, how do you think the grid power transition is, is really going to unfold ultimately? I mean, are we going to keep working away toward a mostly decentralized renewable grid where where utilities are mainly left with just maintaining wires or will will that transition or that transformation just prove too difficult for utilities? Like, will that be just too much of a stretch and, and then we'll just have to make a wholesale switch to a different way of doing things? I mean, what's your bet? I guess I would just ask the rhetorical question of like, if it costs less and it's a value to someone, then what choice do they have? But that being said, there's a huge amount of uncertainty, you know, as to whether that will occur or, or how or, you know, and where. I think that that's a really big question. Solar, for example, has had the, the ITC extended through 2022, in essence, and, you know, the, the end of 2021. And that's a fairly long time, you know, but there's a number of different factors that are allowing it to be cost effective. You know, I wouldn't call them subsidies or characterize them in some way, but they're sources of payment that allow it to be competitive. And I think in different places, when you take those away, they move faster or slower in different places. I mean, they're going to be different in Texas, for example. You can have a merchant generator with very little subsidy whatsoever. I mean, there were there were bids going in and in Texas that were, if I recall correctly, like the 35 to $40 range without any assumption of an ITC extension. And so it could happen in those places. But if you look at a place like that's a little darker and colder, like Massachusetts, where I'm from, that may not be as easy to justify. And if, the, if those things were not there, I think it would move differently. And I think that those those policy levers are going to be moving in different directions and different times in very unpredictable ways. And I think it's going to be unpredictable because of politics, unpredictable because of the market, unpredictable because of electric bills. And, you know, the minute customers start to really focus on how high their bills are, it's amazing how quickly things can change, for example. And so it's just not an easy answer. But I would say that it's not going to be nothing. And it's probably going to be quite a lot. It's just over what time scale are you asking? Yeah. And storage is going to play a big role too. I think storage has a huge role to play, in, especially in places that have better price discovery, where you can better understand the, the forward price of electricity and, and how to store and to manage and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I think I hear you basically saying that it's going to be price driven, like wherever the price goes, that'll dictate the outcome. And politics. Yeah, I yeah. would say. Yeah. Price and politics. Yeah. Price and politics. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'd like to think that, that maybe we could be more creative, that maybe we could reach for another model if, if we think it's right. I, I suppose we could be, uh, we could be an autocratic society and have someone decide for us, but yeah, that's not how it works. Or we could, <laughs> we could wind up with everything, all devices and actors becoming one giant algo operated real-time mm. market. Right. Okay. Well, I think, yeah. And I think that in a sense, that's sort of what the wholesale market is heading towards being, you know, I mean, and, and it is in many ways, like the sort of central generation plants and it's much more knit together and it's much more sort of self-governed by the generators. I mean, that's how Neepool in New England works, you know, in, in sort of rough form. I mean, it's much more complicated than that, but, and there's a question of whether that can take root. It, it, there's a question of whether that can work 
but there's questions about the scale. There's a question of, you know, would it only be at the level of the district, you know, the, the distribution utility, you know, would it be at the level of the state? Would it be at the level of the region? Would it be, those are extremely complex questions, but they're going to be questions that have to be answered in probably starting to be like a decade or two at the yeah. latest. I mean, and that's, that's the thing is, yeah. That, that's what I'm getting at. I mean, absolutely. You know, yeah. right now, sure, you've got a bunch of generators out there in the bulk power market acting and responding, you know, pretty quickly in sort of an algorithmic way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the concepts that I thought was super interesting from our conversation with Eric Gimon in episode 20 mm -hmm. was he had this idea of like a little. I can't remember what he called it, but it was a little box that mm -hmm. would that would negotiate energy transactions for your whole house, right? right. So it, it would talk to all the devices in your house, and it would talk to the grid, and it might be able to take advantage of like a real-time tariff, for example. And then it would be able to do all sorts of negotiating and grid power price arbitrage mm -hmm. with all the devices in your house, right? So you can kind of imagine how that would work. You know, sure, there's say, companies oh, trying to do that right now. Sure. I mean, you've already got companies that are doing that as aggregators of electric vehicles, for example, that mm -hmm. are out there providing, you know, demand response services into the into the grid. And so sure. imagine a future where you've got, let's say, 150 million rooftop solar systems out there. Wow. And you've got, <laughs> yeah. and you've got you know, 200 million of these little boxes out there mm -hmm. doing real-time grid power price arbitrage and interactions with the grid. I mean, that's just a totally different architecture. No, it is. It is. From the one we've got now where you've got a few thousand power plants out there, right? Sure. And I mean, and the grid is a very large and complex machine. And, you know, I think I remember it sort of really opened my eyes. I remember when I was first learning about electricity and the grid to, to sort of have it described to me as a single machine, really just kind of like, that was a very, very watershed moment in my understanding of electricity and old and markets and the whole question of, you know, how it affects society and, you know, the climate and everything. It just made me realize like it's a machine, but it doesn't mean it's a machine that can't be reconfigured. And, you know, it sounds like you, you know, as previous guests, you mentioned that sort of thing, thought of expanding that machine to more things and, you know, expanding it to not just necessarily being electricity, it sounds like, or maybe it's just those things contributing to the electricity grid, but that's a really fascinating question. But remember too, that this, this all involves people. It all involves people who do jobs and who watch all of these things and pay attention to all of these things. So I'm not sure it can completely be kind of something that just takes care of itself. I think it probably is going to be something that will be an evolution. I mean, I think all of these things, we're still going to be discussing some form of this question, I think, in 2050. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean just the question of, you know, yeah. energy. I mean, you know, what should the distributed market be? I mean, I think this isn't going to end. You know, this isn't going to end. The climate issue will not let it end. I think was, is like, no, I think the climate issue will just add increasing pressure to deal with these questions and to move right. faster with evolution and grid transition, you know, power transition in general. Right. One of the, I don't know, I guess one of the guiding principles that I have with respect to energy transition is that none of these problems that we're grappling with here are, 
are fundamentally technical problems. Most of them are policy problems. They're problems of human arrangements. Sure. They're, they're, I mean, they're markets of, are created by humans. Yeah. yeah, they're contracts and agreements and rules mm -hmm. and regulations and all that stuff. They're all human arrangements. They're not technical problems. Like, there's no technical reason why you can't run a 100% renewable grid. And so once you realize that and you realize that every agreement can be undone or can be changed, you know, I mean, you certainly do have to solve a lot of difficult problems along the way to a transition. You, you have to make whole people that are going to stand to lose money or you have to figure out how to make it possible for new entrants to participate and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if the transition to a decentralized renewable grid is where we're going and if that's deemed to be a social good and a priority for humanity because of climate change and other reasons, then we know that ultimately all of the costs involved in doing that transition and all of the new assets that we have to build mm -hmm. are going to be socialized anyway, right? They're going to be socialized through a lot of funky methods sometimes, a lot of different ways of doing things, but they're all going to be socialized anyway. So why not just toss out PERPA? Get rid of the whole concept of a qualifying facility. Scrap the entire regulated business and just go whole hog with the idea of socializing it and making it a public asset, however you want to structure that. I mean, you could, you could even make one big pool of all the legacy assets right now and just say, we're going to amortize this all away and pay for it with printed money. I mean, why not? <laughs> I don't know about the printed money. That, that sounds too much like the Weimar Republic to me. But yeah, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, and I'm not enough of a macroeconomist to say on, on that one. But I think just something to remember is, is that, and I think this is not a perspective that's easy to sort of think of. It's a very abstract concept, but it's also very real is the idea that, you know, these are assets with lives, you know, and those lives come to an end. There's a lot of different plants out there that are very old. You know, and I think that's something that a lot of the EPA regulations have had a really significant impact on. Is there were a lot of older coal-fired power plants that just kind of were limping along, but limping along well enough, but they just couldn't handle it in that new environment. And I think when you think of it as sort of like a series of different plants that have sort of discrete points at which it doesn't really make sense to operate them much longer and assets just kind of move and they come in in waves. You know, and I think that that's, that's a way to sort of think about these changes and how the system will come into force. And I think that it's more just a question of how and when and timing and cost. And I think you're absolutely right. It is about those decisions because, I mean, different places make those decisions and then justify them in different ways. You know, we kind of created the system that we have. I, I always found it funny when I heard someone sort of say, well, the market sort of decided that when, they, when they're talking about a monopoly, you know, and I just sort of laugh a little bit to myself. <laughs> but that being said, I think it's just a question of it does come down to people and their decisions. And it comes down to once a decision's in place, it's amazing the lengths people will go to justify those decisions if they're generally working, you know, if they're sort of generally working for some dominant group of people. So, yeah, I mean, all of policy is politics is power. That's just sort of how it works. And I think ultimately when you demonstrate that something new and different is part of the fabric of life, it will happen. And I think that's what will happen with EVs. That's what happened with cell phones. That's just sort of how people are. There's sort of a, 
there's a first adopter, early adopter cycle to sort of late adopter and sort of maturity. You know, I, I'm not as expert on sort of technological S-curves, but sort of that whole idea of like adoption happening. And you need some of those early adopters to justify sort of the middle and late phases of adoption. And that's the same is true with policy. And that's what I think we'll see over time. But there's this giant intervening factor of of the climate and ensuring a you know a decarbonized system too. Yeah. Yeah. Well it's hard to argue with that. <laughs> well thank you, Jim. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Chris. That was Jim Kennerly, a principal analyst with Sustainable Energy Advantage in Massachusetts. Something that struck me about this conversation was how difficult it really is to imagine what the grid of the future might look like, even if you start with a blank slate. The more you know about how the grid works and the layers and layers of ownership and oversight and control and regulation that it entails, the harder it is to imagine not having to fight your way through all that stuff to get anywhere. And that's a sobering thought, because the people who are out there actually working on energy transition every day making incremental progress through things like rate design and innovative regulation and R&D, those people do have a head full of knowledge about all that. In other words, the people we're counting on to make energy transition happen on the grid are, arguably, among the least able to imagine something fundamentally fresh and different from what we have now. We're not only bound to the past by legacy assets and regulations and sunk costs, we're bound to it by our mental models which are limited by path dependency in the kinds of futures we can imagine. Price and politics will always be like tall weeds entangling our feet as we progress down the path ahead, and it will always be a path lit darkly. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still try to think afresh about where we want to end up and let that be our guide, as if starting over were a real possibility. Because after all, these are only human constructs that we're dealing with here. Why shouldn't it be possible to start over with a new set of constructs? I'm not saying that we need to fully start over, and I'm sure that our progress will be incremental. That's just reality. But we should bear in mind that everything can be changed, and that if we really wanted to start over, we could. It's time to reset, rethink, reposition. There's nothing wrong with me, it's just a condition. It's the science of love. Flower when we fall through it all. We turn with the tide, it's so free on the other side. There's nothing like starting over There's nothing like shedding a heartache Riding a new pace to say what you want to say There's nothing like a heart wide open That bittersweet comfort and knowing You can let go and take the weight off your shoulders There's nothing like starting Do you enjoy the Energy Transition Show enough to buy me a beer once a month as a way of saying thanks? If so, since it's a little impractical for all of you to actually physically buy me a beer in person, although I would love that, then would you consider paying $5 a month for a subscription to this show? We aim to produce a very high quality product, and it takes a good deal of time and effort to do that. At some point, perhaps later this fall, we will be looking to start bringing in revenue in order to make all this effort sustainable and keep putting out a quality product. And we'd rather do that on a subscription basis, if possible, than subject our listeners to more bloody advertising. So, 
If you value this show enough to pay $5 a month for it, which would give you access to two full episodes per month, plus some other goodies, we'd like to hear from you. Or if you have other price points in mind or other ideas, we'd like to hear those too. You can send us a note using the comment form at the bottom of each episode's page, or just drop me an email to chris at energytransitionshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. Before we get to the usual news segment, I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners who take the time to send in their feedback on the show. You're keeping me on my toes and keeping my wheels spinning, and I appreciate it. The last episode, number 23, generated the most responses yet, and I'd like to share with listeners one of those responses which I thought was particularly stimulating. Jacob Mays, a graduate student at Northwestern University, writes, Number one, it's clear that running a system on mostly wind and solar, or nuclear for that matter, involves a high fixed cost and a low marginal cost. However, this is not incompatible with current wholesale markets. We currently run a system with mostly fixed demand in which the marginal supplier sets the price. There's nothing inherently different with a system with mostly fixed supply in which the marginal load sets the price. At the extreme, 100% variable energy resources, zero storage, you will get high variance in the prices, zero in times of excess, very high in times of shortage. There is nothing stopping market participants from hedging this volatility via long-term PPAs or other contracts. There are arguments that it will be difficult to guarantee resource adequacy under these conditions. To be sure, markets will have to calibrate to a degree administratively set, shortage pricing or capacity pricing to handle this. The good news is we don't actually need to figure this out in advance. The resource mix changes pretty slowly, and those prices can change over time. Number two, there seems to be a disconnect between our inability to forecast and the desire for more centralized planning or non-market decision-making. The primary goal of wholesale market design is to guarantee non-discriminatory access. In a situation where we want innovation and are unable to forecast well, this seems to be preferable to any alternative. In fact, I would suggest that the lack of open access and transparency is the source of a lot of the current tension in Arizona, Nevada, etc. This is not to say that ongoing tweaks aren't warranted, but fundamentally, I think moving away from wholesale markets would hurt rather than help energy transition. So thanks, Jacob, for contributing those deep thoughts. And now, let's move on to some recent news items. Item 1. Journalist Jeff McMahon, an energy journalist for Forbes, recently pointed out that Commonwealth Edison, or ComEd, the largest utility in Illinois, and SolarCity, the largest installer of solar systems in the country, are now united in their messages to legislators, it's time to leave behind the utility model of generating power at big central power stations and shipping it to customers, and adopt a new, quote, platform model, in which customers could buy and sell energy and energy services like storage, and utilities could be compensated with transaction fees and service-based charges, including reselling power generated by the rooftop systems of their customers, with a markup. SolarCity CEO Lyndon Reeve warned that if regulators don't change the current infrastructure to accommodate distributed generation, a new infrastructure will develop in parallel to the old one, and utilities will wind up holding stranded assets. It's an excellent point, and one I fully agree with, and I might add, is an excellent echo of one of the first questions I asked in this episode's interview. Why shouldn't customers be fully and equally compensated market actors in the grid of the future? Item 2. 
In another timely echo of this interview's themes, Peter Maloney of Utility Dive recently wrote about how utilities in Idaho, Oregon, Utah, Michigan, Montana, and North Carolina have mounted battles against key provisions of the 1978 Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, better known as PERPA. At the end of the interview, I suggested that perhaps it was time to put aside PERPA, which was originally designed to encourage small renewable and cogeneration plants in an era when all utilities were vertically integrated monopolies, and instead reach for a new framework that's appropriate to the grid of the future, with distributed generation and open markets. Republican members of the House and Senate Energy Committees apparently argued at a FERC conference that PERPA is no longer relevant, given the changes that are sweeping through electric power markets. A key issue is the way that PERPA bases payments for so-called qualifying facilities on an avoided cost basis, rather than being priced by the market. The details of this debate are far too complex for a short news item, but we'll link to Maloney's article in the show notes and perhaps revisit the subject in full in a future episode. Item 3. Energy-related emissions in the U.S. from natural gas this year will surpass the emissions from coal for the first time since 1972, according to a new analysis by the EIA. The carbon intensity of coal is about 82% higher than that of natural gas per BTU produced, the analysis says, which is why the emissions from coal and gas were nearly equal in 2015, while natural gas consumption was 81% higher than coal consumption. But this year, gas emissions are expected to be 10% higher than coal emissions, which I assume mainly reflects the ongoing transition of power plants from coal to gas. Total U.S. carbon intensity has fallen from 60 million metric tons of CO2 per quadrillion BTU in 2005 to 54 in 2015, which seems like a positive trend and a more useful metric than the more commonly cited energy use per GDP metric. However, it's also a sobering thought that the total energy-related emissions are stubbornly high and hard to reduce. According to EIA's latest short-term energy outlook, total energy emissions will only fall about 1% per year from 2014 to 2017. And those projections are, of course, sensitive to assumptions about weather and economic growth. It's possible that we might make no progress at all. As always, we'll link to those reports in the show notes. Item 4. The first offshore wind farm in America is finally complete. The Block Island Wind Farm, off the coast of Rhode Island, which began construction about a year ago, is finally installed. The 30-megawatt project comprises five of the massive 6-megawatt turbines made by Alstom, which is now owned by GE. The rotor of each turbine is nearly one and a half times the length of a football field, or 150 meters, and the blade tips of the turbines will tower 600 feet above the water. Deepwater Wind, the developer of the project, says the farm will power all of Block Island, which currently relies on expensive diesel fuel, and could also help cut electricity bills for Block Island residents by up to 40%. The project is expected to begin generating power in Q4 of this year. Considering that many other countries have had offshore wind projects for many years now, and that the U.S. already has some 47,000 wind turbines onshore, we are getting a decidedly late start with offshore wind. This 30-megawatt offshore wind farm is a good start, but Denmark had 13 offshore wind farms with a combined capacity of 1,271 megawatts in 2014, as we discussed in episode 17. Still, the potential for offshore wind in the U.S. is huge. Over 4,000 gigawatts, or more than four times the nation's total annual electricity capacity, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. So it's very exciting to see offshore wind finally becoming a reality in America. And finally, item five. 
Utility-scale wind and solar costs are already reaching the point where they will be cheaper than any other option except efficiency. According to the latest annual report on wind released by the U.S. Department of Energy and prepared by the Electricity Markets and Policy Group at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, prices offered by newly built wind projects are averaging around $0.02 per kilowatt hour, down from $0.07 per kilowatt hour in 2009, partly thanks to more wind projects being built in the lowest priced areas of the country. And in Chile, a new record low solar bid was set at 2.91 cents per kilowatt hour, or $29.10 per megawatt hour, beating the previous record low of 2.99 cents per kilowatt hour set by Mazdar in Dubai earlier this year. The winning bid submitted by SolarPack won contracts in one of the time-based blocks, while other contracts in the 3 cents per kilowatt range won in the main daytime blocks. For a discussion of how Chile's time-based auction works, listen to episode 19 and we'll link to articles on both of those developments in the show notes. Now to be sure, these are only the lowest recent prices to be announced and don't represent the entire global market, but they are now in the range where no other fuel can beat them, and prices in the rest of the market continue to trend downward. I think there can be no doubt now that the transition to renewables has truly become unstoppable. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.